right, here we are. Welcome back to Book Wave, the book club podcast. This is another episode of the Wavecast with just Scottsley and Marvin. And uh, today we're talking about, well, the same thing that we've been talking about for the last couple of episodes. So you had a, a question specifically. By the way, this is Marvin, a.k.a. Two More Vs. You should go check out his music, which will be presented as the intro and the outro of this video. So... Yes, you, you had a question to kick us off. Yeah, um, it would be interesting for me to know what exactly would have to happen for you to join a religion. And I mean, what's most interesting for me to, to join orthodoxy, of course, but maybe first in general. Well, this is, I think it the biggest factor is like the starting point, because for me, I didn't really have a much of a religious upbringing, so I kind of took in the, the public school teaching of it, which is like fairly neutral, but leaning towards the, you know, this is just what religious people do. So I feel like it would need to like kind of uproot that mentality because you know I grew up watching you know Matt Dillahunty videos of him asking this kind of question to religious people like what would it take for you to leave your religion or whatever what would it take to debunk this in your mind and I'm not really like sure what it would look like the other way around but I mean, whenever I look at things in, like that a Christian scholar presents as evidence for God, I never see it as evidence for God because I always think this would also exist in a world without God because that's how I currently see the world and I can understand how this might come about without that factor. So until I see something that undoubtedly says this is, like, this could only exist in a world that was created by God. And, you know, a lot of people would just say, well, just look at the sunrise, but that's that doesn't quite cut it for me. But I think the biggest factor is, like, that starting point and what you were taught when you were young about the world. And without ever really going to church except for, weddings and you know funerals and stuff like that like both of my parents came from a household which they went to church every day but they both kind of like didn't like it so when they were on their own they just said yeah this isn't for me anymore and I'm not gonna make my kids go to church if they don't want to so you know you ask a kid do you want to go to church or do you want to play some Super Mario Brothers you know what the answer is right but yeah I don't know without that like first in ingrainment of what it's all about I really don't know what it would look like to see something and like have to actually put that in a category of the divine or just you know what I've been trained to believe so far is like a trick of the mind or whatever you know like you talking to yourself the internal dialogue with 
what Socrates would call the diamond or the demon. So does does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's a good start, I would say. The the general arguments that you were talking about um, that you don't really buy into would be something like the the argument of I think it's called of intelligent design. So when when Christians point out how complex the world is, um, yeah, I never I never really bought into that either, um, because if you go with, I mean, if you first of all, if you accept that things just came into being for no reason whatsoever, out of nothingness, if you go with that, and that's that's a different topic that we can also talk about, but if you go with that. From that point on, then it's also believable that things be, be, be got as complex as they are right now. So I also never really thought of that as a good argument for to give to atheists. Um, like the I Kalam, mean, the Kalam hmm? cosmological argument never held water in my eyes. Like William Lane Craig, that's the guy. I've listened to this guy debate people for hours on end, and I'm just like. This guy's going all about it the wrong way because the way he presents it could only convince someone who already believed in God. And I mean, I'm not even sold on the Big Bang. I like I think all of the matter in the universe was probably already there at one point and I don't really see the universe as necessarily eternally expanding rather than like pulsating, maybe spiraling going in and out of itself, being moved by gravity eternally. The end factor might be that it just goes off into nothing like the like the atheist or the scientific explanation would be, but like I I'm not going to just pick a theory and run with it. Like there's there's another way to look at it too. Like I see I was flirting with the idea of paganism for a long time just Researching uh, the Eddas, I really like the Norse mythology and the, the the Vegas or the Vedas. I forget how it is now, but all of those stories are really interesting to me, and I like history. But then I come across all of these like uh, YouTubers and online personality personalities making these videos like, which type of polytheism is right for you? Should you be a Celtic polytheist or a Norse pagan? Or I'm like. Okay, now I feel like you're just picking your personality and religion and life from a drop-down menu instead of actually deciding what you believe to be true. And that's another thing. I don't really think that we can actively choose what we believe. I think you have to be convinced somehow. And you do that through, like any kind of method like meditation or prayer or you know just research or like really asking the hard questions and finding out who has the better answer but I keep finding a bunch of answers that don't work for me so you know there's there's a lot of obstacles there for me to join anybody because there's some elements of paganism that I really like and some elements of Christianity that I really like as well. And I don't think that they're like mutually exclusive in some cases. No, especially Christianity doesn't think of them as, as exclusive, um, which doesn't mean that we accept pagan worship. 
but uh, to make it really, really short, all the other gods are demons. Um, so we, we we believe that they exist. We just think that they are, um, you know, in the in the hierarchy of of celestial beings. Um, you obviously you have God and and the you know the the seraphim and the cherubim, like the the archangels, and then you have the the angels that are below the archangels, and um, they all fit into a hierarchy, and uh, even the saints fit into that hierarchy. And the role, or one of the roles that these uh, angels and also the saints um, are supposed to play is point towards the highest. Um, and every time that one of them doesn't, uh, that's when they fall short of the idea, ideal. And um, that's what makes them demonic in a sense. So that's why Satan um, is, is, a, is a demon technically, uh, because he points towards himself and not towards God. And that's also the problem with these other um, uh, lowercase g gods, um, is that they don't point towards Christ, at least not actively. Um, and so that's why we condemn worshipping them, or praying to them, or something like that. Because ultimately, what our goal as human beings, and I think we can, we can agree on that, what a goal should be, is to strive towards the highest ideal. And so if your religion doesn't um, support that because it stops at a lower level, uh, then it's a problematic religion. doesn't mean that it can't do any good for you, um, but it, it will hold you back at some point in your development. Hmm. I, could, I could see, like, not that I'm really, like, uh, considering becoming a pagan, but I could see the pagan answer to that being that uh, or even Nietzsche's answer to that would be that there's more than one kind of ideal or more than one path of reaching the ideal the ideal for different people which would form like the tools of like Odin and Thor for the warrior or the wise strategist or uh, say Athena for someone who really wanted to be like strive to be a uh, not sure like there's there's obviously different ways of approaching the ideal for men and women of different personalities so i think that looking to a certain set of gods whether you choose the greek pantheon or the norse or whatever if you choose like more than one you can eventually like reach that ideal through internal dialogue between those deities like I, I understand the the kind of the Christian outlook where you have the that personal conversation with say Christ but I think in the ancient way of doing things there would be like a larger conversation in that like form of prayer you would ask Thor for protection Odin for wisdom like Tyr for courage and like uh, you know say Athena just for bravery brevity and like the ability to put yourself out there without fear 
kind of like courage, but more of like a feminine aspect of it. And when you only have like the one God and the one way of like reaching that ideal, a lot of people might get stuck along the road and not be able to see themselves in the image of Christ or the image of God, what have you. This is a reason why the veneration of the saints is so crucial. Um, and, you know, you don't have that in the Protestant church. You do have it in the Catholic church, of course, um, though in slightly different ways. Uh, but what, what you see there is that, well, first of all, Christ is sufficient, I would say. So if you were to uh, deeply engage in prayer and all of that only to Christ, technically, uh, you could also, whatever your, your personal way is, find it through him. But what Christ does with the saints is that he gives, out of love for these people, um, he gives certain tasks to them, uh, certain certain uh, specialities. I think you could say, um, which which they are very good at. Uh, so you have healing saints, for example. Um, you have those who are particularly good at uh, exorcisms. Um, we have saints for finding things that we lost, for example. So so um, that's similar. Uh, in, in a way to the uh, uh, pantheistic um, uh, gods. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see the difference of how the, the saints themselves point to something higher where the, you know, Odin is only really pointing to himself at the end of the day, so. Yeah, and that's, that's, uh, that's very, yeah, that's very important, I would say. Um, for people for whom it is hard to understand um, why you should pray to uh, uh, the, the Holy Virgin or why you should pray to um, St. John of Kronstadt or whatever, uh, is that, you, you know, Christ is sharing with them in the same way that, uh, in a similar way that uh, parents are sharing with their children when they let them deck the, the table. Uh, so, you, you know, Christ could take the, the dishes them himself and just get them there. But because he wants to share uh, all these things with uh, those who, who, who love him and want to help him, not that it's necessary that he needs to help, but, but you can still want to help someone even if they don't need your help. Um, that's why he shares with them. And so this is this, this hierarchy where he, where he gives these tasks to the saints so that they can share in his glory and also for us to make it easier to find our ways our way towards him uh, because as you said like we we are very very different and if you only look at christ it's sometimes very because the gap is so so wide it's it's very hard to find the correct path um, but if you uh, have certain um, idiosyncrasies that align with those of some saints and then you can look at the saints lives and you can find specific examples for how they overcame um, uh, their passions or whatever and then you can orient yourself 
towards that while not only looking at the, the saint, but also still aiming for Christ. So I guess one of the, or another point would be, what makes it necessary for the story to be true and to believe it like it's true as opposed to just acting as if because I like a lot of the stuff that you're saying it's like I, I see it as true because you can follow the pattern of Christ without Christ ever actually having existed so we, mm -hmm. we did talk about the incarnation in our last episode but I'm, I'm still not quite sure that like when you mentioned that like perfect things can incarnate, I would agree with that, but I think there's also multiple versions of the perfect incarnation. Like not in the form of like mass production of the same thing, but like kind of like I said about like reaching the ideal through different methods. I don't, I'm not sure if that ideal that everyone could potentially reach looks exactly like a carbon copy of like other perfect things mm -hmm. like I think if, if Jesus was a perfect incarnation then there's then you could also believe that you know any of the prophets afterwards were you know a perfect incarnation that they just didn't write as much down about the difference um, is that Christ isn't the incarnation of Christ is not the same um, thing as the incarnation of let's say Elijah and his uh, perfect pattern let's say um, because what you have what, what's incarnating uh, are, are different persons um, so that's also why the idea of the Trinity is important, I would say, is that um, if you, you have the Godhead, and that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and when the Son incarnated, it's like all of these three are distinct persons in the sense that they're not just like one thing, they are, they, they are just... In, in a similar way that you are a complete person with a lot of um, uh, content, let's say, uh, that, that makes you. Also, the sun has very, very specific contents that, that make him the sun. And um, so when you have uh, Enoch or Elijah uh, behaving perfectly um, in, in the eyes of God, then you have you have you have a different form of incarnation because what they are incarnating is Christ but in their individual way so it's it's Christ in Elijah that's perfectly incarnated but when Christ came to earth um it's it's the sun 
of God. It's the image of the Father that is perfectly incarnated. Without the middleman of Elijah, let's say. But it's it's literally just him. Hmm. So, you have... Um, you know, when we talk about the incarnation of Christ uh, and the birth of Elijah, for example, um, you don't have... You have Elijah coming into the world as a flawed human being, still, as a fallen human being, I would say. Um, but when Christ incarnated, because Mary was so pure and so 100% dedicated to God, um, that is why she could, she could give birth to the Son of God, truly. So those are still, like, from, from a personality perspective, let's say, those are different, different um, well, different persons. So Does that make the, the difference more clear? Yeah. So, like, more things have to line up. Like it doesn't, have, it can't be dependent on just the the one force. I'm not sure. I got a <laughs> lot of things going through my mind now. <laughs> so then, like, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. what what does the return of Jesus look like? Like, you believe he'll come again, right? That's part of. So, like, what factors do you think? Like, if you needed the Mary to get Christ. I, I, that really puts a lot into perspective about, like, when I hear Catholics talk about Mary and when they argue against Protestants, I kind of, yeah, it sinks in a little bit more. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great difference. You can see it like, um, you know, when you, when you have a lake uh, and you want something mirrored in that lake, the moment that there is some form of wave or, or ripple, it distorts the image, be it as little as it might be. But what Mary was, was the perfectly still lake that mirrored the image of the Father into the world. And so that's, that's why Mary is so, so important uh, in Christian theology, and that's why we call her, uh, uh, well, the Blessed Virgin, the Holy Virgin, um, the the mother of God is like we there's there's a reason that we do that it's not just arbitrary titles or something like that and you know when you when you ask about the second coming um, well you can if if we if we look to if, uh, in into the um, the gospels. You have, I, I don't know if it's in every gospel, I think in the gospel of Luke, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, you have descriptions of what must come before uh, Christ can come again. Um, and also when you look into Revelation, there's some signs that, that, that will show. Yeah, I'm familiar with the signs that will show, but I, like the prerequisites, let's say, like, it, it makes so much sense to me that you can't get like a savior figure without, you know, the devout mother first, because, you know, how would you, how would you understand the love of God, you know, that agape without, 
you know, receiving that from like a strong mother and a strong father figure. Hmm. True. And I would say with the incarnate, uh, with the with the second coming, the so if you look at the patterns that are that are being shown in the revelation, for example, um, you know, with the harlot and the the five five headed beast and and yeah, the, like the, the dragon, whore, the whore of Babylon and the four horsemen. <laughs> right, right. Uh, is I mean, we have things like that manifesting all the time, right now even. Um, and the only, uh, which is also why some people say that the end is now, um, but we don't know if it is, um, is that y these patterns have to manifest perfectly, not as an iteration mm. of, of things, but they have to be exactly that. And I don't mean literally. Uh, I don't. I I don't say that, you know. Only when the dragon flies around, then you can say this is the end. That's not exactly what I'm saying, but, you know, right now there are still aspects that have not come, come to be, um, and so it's not a perfect incarnation of the end times. Um, yeah. And like. Yeah, I'm sure that like the comparison. Like, all of the horsemen are always existing, all of the time. Like, death happens to everybody. War is a constant. Famine and pestilence or, you know, the conquering of nations is just always happening. So, like, until that manifests as, like, the perfect form of it, you know, the... A little hairy to say, like, well, we need to wait for the perfect war. That's, <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want to see that one. I think uh, a couple wars at a time here and there is quite enough, and I think we should do away with that first. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to do away with that as well. We we won't. Um, I'm I'm certain that we won't. Right. Um, because as you can. A little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we can diminish it in our own lives. We can stop doing it ourselves. That's a great, great start, I would say. Um, and, I mean, you can say, yeah, well, but I'm not leading armies into other countries. Yeah, but you're kind of doing things like that in your personal life, though. Like, you're, you're warring against other people. Um, you're bringing pestilence to them. Um, even in, in, I'm not talking about COVID. <laughs> yeah. But, like... At, at least like sickness of the mind for example like we do that all the time um and we could we could focus on stopping that and i i personally i'm i'm not i'm also not looking forward to that aspect of the end times like even if it were to happen in my lifetime uh, i'm not looking forward to that aspect of it but there's also part of me that is looking forward to it because of the promise that was made to us for the time afterwards um, because what we see is that there's it's fragmentation and conflict all the way down, and it's getting worse over time. Like it's the things are not getting better, uh, as we see. Like it's it's just getting worse, and I believe that it's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse until Christ comes back and until the kingdom is established. 
um, and afterwards things are not going to suck <laughs> especially not in the way that they do now so that's something to look forward to it's just that we have to pass through some hardships before yeah I, I'm not so sure I think we have to like I think the responsibility is on us I think just waiting for it to decay like I know Paul Vanderclay talks about the age of decay a lot I'm like I don't think just waiting for it to all fall apart so we can build it up from the ashes is the right way I know like I know the story of the Tower of Babel but I think there's another ending to that story I think there's more of a lesson in there than you know just uh, this is the inevitable fate I think it holds the key of like avoiding everyone speaking the wrong language so they spread out and do nothing but fight each other for the rest of eternity I think there's a way that we can remedy that language so we're all speaking to each other on like the same plane of existence and not just like some people living in a world of you know chaos and just dealing with the dragon every day and other people living in the grace of God need to be able to sit down at the same table and talk about you know all of these problems like the four horsemen and everything because like we all know the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket if we don't do anything about it so yeah I mean, for sure like we got we gotta do something I 100 I 100% I, I agree like this this form of apathy towards the suffering in the world is definitely I would even call it satanic that's that's not a way to approach it that doesn't mean that you have to you know panic about things either because that's not going to help anyone but we have to do something the problem often is that or the problem often is that we can't really affect anything outside of our own small world but that can make quite the difference if you do it properly uh, because I, I, Jordan talks about how you're a node in a network and how things ripple out into the world and that is happening and that is the way that we should um, approach it we have we had one saint I forgot who it was who said that um, if you're if you bring Christ's light into the world just through your own person and your own being thousands around you can be saved by that um, and I think that is the same idea and that's 100% true so I think that's how we should approach it we should accept that this is an age of decay I mean the universe itself like all of history even before human history is 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 decay like things are falling apart constantly that's how uh, the planets could even form um, is through decay uh, so it's not there's no denying that that's the case but that doesn't mean that we have to give in to that yeah like I think the planets form through vibration and music and then eventually through gravity but I'm a crazy person so don't listen to me <laughs> I mean it's not it's not wrong is it 
if you look at if you if you look at the core of things, then everything is vibration and energy in a sense. I mean, this sounds very new agey, but I'm not even I'm not talking about it. Like if if you look into physics, that's the case, uh, and all the things that happen are patterns, uh, and music is nothing but patterns. Um, also, so so like that, Jordan also said that one time is that he exp he thinks of the world being as being much more of a musical masterpiece than anything else. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely the that. case. I resonate with that a hundred percent. Like I see life as a symphony, if nothing else. And you know, that's like another perfect analogy for me is that when people fall out of harmony with each other, it's like, have you ever had like two tabs open on Google Chrome or whatever internet Explorer and they're both playing different songs? And it's just driving you insane until you can find, like, which one of these is playing music? I need to close one. The other stream is starting or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I think that's what we're experiencing a lot. Is just like, over there in our periphery is, you know, the 4-4 four, four time signature, the perfect melody. And over on this periphery is you know, a bunch of crazy people playing in 7-2 and, you know, 8-3 time and we're sitting here in the middle not being able to, you know, tell what from what. Like, I think when, I think, like, if you can call Christianity 4-4 time, like the perfect, you know, aligned Christian is 4-4 time, then maybe someone like me is playing in 2-4 time. It doesn't disrupt the beat, but I'm not, like, I'm not hitting every note, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, I think different points of view can coexist to the point where it's, like, you're still in kind of a matched time signature or playing a harmony, but if you have you know, demon worshippers over on the right-hand side playing in 7-2, you're not going to be able to, you know, you're not going to be able to make a harmony. You're not going to understand each other with both songs playing at the same time. It's like they're on the edge. They're barking like dogs, right? Like Jonathan Peugeot would say. The barbarians, the bar, bar, bar. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's how I see the world. That's how I explain most of the discord, let's say, is we literally can't hear each other over the incomprehensible music that we hear when it's playing at the same time. Yeah, yeah I, th I think that's perfectly valid. Um, but it also shows the importance of having, well, having the same highest idea. So, because then, if, if you know, if we if we all let's say have Christ as our highest ideal, but we still have our own ways of of living, but aligned with Christ, that doesn't mean that you know, if you if you if you just for a second were to think of myself uh, of me as the per perfect Christian, that wouldn't mean that uh, if you wanted to be that as well um then that you'd also have to make the kind of music that i make and and decorate your room the same way i do um 
but there are like the way that Christ does his thing is that he um, it's it's he's a way of and that's also what we see in the icon of Pentecost um, it's it's a way to have multiplicity and unity at the same time right so the metaphor continues and gets deeper because when you look at the 4-4 time signature 95% of the music that we all listen to is all in 4-4 time so like if you're a metalhead or a punk or just like classic rock then there's room for you in the 4-4 time signature but if you want to like reach outside of that and just go 3-6 or something you're kind of cutting yourself off from you know the, what the rest of the world is playing like we all kind of agree that we like the 4-4 time signature over here like the little bit of music that, that's in you know whatever other time there's room for it but it when it gets too loud it's like a cacophony and like yeah we're all like, uh, it's okay when there's one dominant and then there's one kind of subservient. But like once they're both as big as each other, then that's like, it starts to look like the battle of good versus evil instead of just, you know, a little pocket of, they're doing their own thing in a world of cohesive values. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, maybe this aligns with the idea of the holy fool, for example, um, where you have this person that is behaving not at all in a way that you would ex expect to behave, but they are still aligned with Christ and they are just pointing towards things that those who aren't fools can't point towards. Um, so I think that would make sense. Uh, because that's also the thing that we claim about Christ is that it's, you know, he's uniting all the opposites in the way that they have to be aligned for them to fit so there still is an, a specific order to it um, but it's not diminishing the um, the in individuality of those things Another thing that would interest me, and I, I touched on the, this very, very briefly uh, in, in the beginning of the video, um, is we can, we can understand how things came to be if we accept that they came out of nothingness. Um, or that they were always there. Uh, but that seems to me to be quite the stretch, and in a sense the same kind of stretch, as it might seem to atheists when we say that, well, God did it. Like, how do you reconcile that? See, like, I think that might be... Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to, like, fit those two views in the same box. Clearly. <laughs> um, 
You don't get rid of the mystery, right? I mean, we, we Christians, in a sense, do, because we say, well, God is God. He's being, let's say, he is. That's why he says, I am. Um, and he made things. So that's, if you, if you can accept God, then that's, a, like, that makes sense. Like, that's this divine being that made things. Yeah, okay. Um, but if you say, for example, if you go with the Big Bang Theory, that doesn't make much sense because you just you either say it's it came out of nothing or you say it came out of the singularity uh which still uh, yeah okay but where did that come from like you don't get rid of this this mysterious aspect of 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 being i i agree i just i see like maybe it's the wrong word but i see a certain arrogance in saying well I know it was God, or I know it was the Big Bang. Like I said, like I don't buy either story in particular, and I'm fully comfortable just saying I don't know what happened before recorded history, and I don't know what's gonna happen after I die. <laughs> I think uh, in like the companion piece of God's Dog, he uh, talks about that quite a bit. Like the the edge of time when Jonathan Peugeot is talking about like the Garden of Eden and the the flaming sword. Actually, I think this was the Matthew Peugeot article that was in there. When he talks about the flaming sword after he gets removed from the the uh, Garden of Eden, like the flaming sword represents that like you can't go back and you can't you know understand what happened before like you were exiled kind of thing like you're you're now humanity is now cut off from not only that experience but the knowledge of everything that that was so I'm like if you're just talking about the symbology of that I believe that 100% because you know we as the human race all of humanity cannot tell you where the Sphinx came from. People think they know, but other people think that they have a different answer. Like, is it, you know, 4,000 years old, or is it 12,000 years old? There's I've, I've seen I've seen people claim now that it's 28,000 years old. It gets older and older every time that I check. That's very interesting. So I, I think, like, the... The flood myth and the the Garden of Eden exile. There's probably a few more examples of this in the Bible, where it just represents like not only is the world changing, but also the knowledge of the world is changing. The perception of the world is changing to the point where previous perceptions of the world are now just obsolete because we know something more about the world now and uh, I'm not sure if we're going through one of those instances right now but I think we're probably going backwards not like backwards in the progressive sense but you know back towards tradition rather than 
forward towards like a scientific, more modern uh, view of the world. Because I, I think it's, the more we change it, the more we're kind of breaking it. I think this whole Great Reset thing that's going on is kind of, you know, an attempt to invoke another one of these Noah's Flood or Exile from the Garden type events where the whole world is now changing into something else and the old perceptions don't work anymore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that, that battle between those two ideas is happening right now. And there's, there's either going to be a flood or there won't be. But either way, we're cut off from the knowledge of, you know, that far back. And no one can tell the future. So that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if we, if we, it depends on the perspective that you take. Um, if like as as a as a human being, with without regarding my my knowledge about Christian symbolism, I find it very very necessary to say that we don't know either. Like we we don't we don't know what came before because we didn't see it and we don't know what will come after because we well we haven't experienced it yet um and it, that you know you if you if you forget about that then you do grow arrogant um the the atheists as much as the christians do mm-hmm. um and we shouldn't forget this is something that alan watts was talking about often which i really like um is that his idea he he says that uh you never get out of the misery of accepting that it's your own authority that you choose even other authorities so i might i might say that i do believe uh, in christ and i do believe in the bible and all of these things and i do um but i'm also aware that I do so by my own authority, maybe by the grace of God, but still by my own authority. If I were to now say that I'm I'm going to choose something else, then I could technically do that, um, and I don't get around. I don't get around my free will. Let's say that's that's a constant. Um, but also, again, in Christian in Christianity, very necessary. Uh, because otherwise we couldn't enter into a loving relationship with God if we didn't have free will to do so or to not do it, in a sense. So yeah, I, I, I agree. Like that's It's very important not to forget about that, and we should never forget about it. Um, that's also what kind of dis- dis- distinguishes the act of, of trust and faith. The, uh, that we as as Christians um, take when we say that well we can't know things for sure um, we do believe that this is what's going to happen or that this is what's going on um, and for me personally I don't know about the other people's journeys but uh, for me personally uh, as soon as I understood enough of the symbolism 
to to make it coherent for me and that's when i decided that i am going to believe in that because anything else doesn't make sense to me um so no one can give you a better ideal than Christ. It's it's literally impossible. I've never seen anyone do it. Um, and you don't even have to, like right now, believe that Christ was a a historical figure, which he most likely was. But still, even if you don't believe in that, you have the pattern of Christ. And you can't find anything better than that. So, to me... It just makes sense that all these things stack up and down. So you you it just if if you want to have an origin of if you want to find the origin of being itself, then it obviously must be the highest ideal. Uh, because where else would life come from if not from the highest ideal uh, and and being itself? So. That, just it's very hard to to verbalize these these ideas but like nothing else makes sense to me to to be honest and that's why i also bought into the rest of the church let's say which i i uh, even in the things that i have not grasped fully yet hmm. so would it change anything for you if say How do I even put this? Like, if somehow there was, like, some kind of miraculous evidence that just popped into existence that was, you know, 100% authenticated, that, you know, proved that Jesus wasn't a real person or wasn't an actual person, and that, like, the whole thing started when, say, Moses discovered this pattern and other people afterwards, like Joshua and Elijah and all of the other kings and judges, built on top of that pattern and started, maybe not developing, but like figuring out this pattern and just over, you know, the thousands of years of Judaism and Christianity they discovered this pattern and then decided that the only way to make people believe it would be to create this Jesus story. And let's say what if the pattern de depends precisely on believing on something that cannot be verified. I think, I think that's what kind of lines up with what I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if it if it depends on something that can't be verified, I would say that that's already the case, because while we do have some evidence for a Jesus of Nazareth, and there are things that point towards him probably having risen from the dead, uh, I still can't authenticate. Uh, uh, authenticate? Mm, sure. <laughs> I I I, I, kill, I I can't verify it. Either way, I also I can't verify the virginity of Mary. Um, so so I think that is already the case. Um, yeah, yeah, but but what I mm -hmm. what I kind of think is that it's driven by that 
aspect that mm -hmm. because it it's not only that it can't be verified, it also can't be debunked. So it lives in this weird Schrodinger's cat situation where like it's both alive and dead and inert and everything just depending it's, on your perspective of it. Yeah, it's I, fundamentally it's fundamentally a mystery. I, I think that that's necessary for free will. So I think it, it, it even has to be that way. Because if you, if, if God would force you to 100% believe that these things happen, I don't think that you wouldn't go to church. I, I think that would be the first thing that you do is become a catechumen and then receive Holy Communion, go to confession and do all these things that, well, the church says that have to be done. But if there's still some form of unknowability about it, uh, then it, it forces you to use your free will to either walk towards that or walk away from it. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's a, necess a necessity for the whole thing. And the, the first part of your question, if I got that right, was if I could somehow, don't, don't ask us how, but if I could somehow know that Christ hadn't incarnated or incarnated yet and that they were building upon this, this, this pattern, uh, what I would do then? Because if that were the case, then we would, I, I, because the pattern is still real, like existence is not as clear cut as we think. Um, the, the pattern is still real, then we would live in pre-incarnation world. So I, th I think that then Christ would still have to be born, and I would uh, anticipate that. All right. That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, all of existence is a story. In, in in the end and stories have a point <laughs> i mean maybe maybe not not clearly if you read like De derrida or foucault or something like the postmodernists um but even their stories have a meta point that they just can't perceive um so existence itself is a story and it has a point and it's building towards something like that's just that's I, I can't deny for myself that that's just how the world lays itself out for me. Um, and so I think that necessarily this would happen. If it hadn't happened already, then it would necessarily happen at some point. Yeah. I don't believe the, the world or existence or history to be like season 8 of Game of Thrones, where everything's pointless and going towards nothing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for reminding you. <laughs> like I just I don't I don't buy into that. Like I don't think that being is that way. Um it just yeah. 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 That that's a I really like that way of looking at the world as a story. 
It's like, well, like the whole point of the story of Lord of the Rings wouldn't be so clear to Frodo Baggins. It would be more clear to the people that have experienced reading the whole thing. Because Frodo doesn't have the, uh, you know, the, the viewpoint of what happens to everybody else and all of the other character arcs. I think, like, in a great story like Lord of the Rings, all of the character arcs can happen inside one person simultaneously, so... Um, yeah, there, there was a great point that Paul Vanderclay made about that, too. Is like, if you wanted to... Like, if you were Frodo and you wanted to understand Tolkien... Who would you ask? Like, who would you talk to? What would you do? You would, you know, travel through the Shire, talk to, talk to everybody else, all of Tolkien's characters, you know, have deep conversations with Gandalf to understand, you know, that facet of Tolkien's outlook. You would have deep conversations with, you know, uh, Legolas and Gimli and everyone else and try to figure out what what Tolkien, what's really going on inside Tolkien's mind. So if, like, if you could run with that metaphor, I think that's the best way you can learn how to know God, per se, is to, you know, talk to all of his other little creatures. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, that, that's kind of how I see it, like, like, if there is a god, I think that's probably a better way to learn about him than to just, I, I, I don't know, than, than anything else, is like, learn through community and through each other, and I, I do understand that's how, like, it's the function of church for the most part, too. So, like that, I, I yeah, just that's. I just mm -hmm. don't feel like there's very much room for, you know, people that cannot honestly say that they believe in God. Like, I feel like there's not really room for that classification of people in the church. What um, do you mean by that? I don't understand that. Like, just people that would say, I don't believe in God. I feel like the church would be like, well, this isn't, this isn't the place for you. Oh, yeah, fair, fair. I mean, in, in, you can, you can still come, like, no one would throw you out in that sense, you can, you can come uh, and stay in the narthex, <laughs> and you can also come, like, you can, you can, can come into the nave, uh, you can't participate in the sacraments, um, no one would throw you out, though, um, because, well, why would we? We believe in God, and we also see that, A, we found him by the grace of God. That's a gift. That's not something that we can be smug about or, or something like that. Um, and on the other hand, like at least the converts know that it sometimes takes a lot to, to come, come to him and really believe. Like, that's, that's a hard... That's a hard road and a long road sometimes. Um, I remember uh, that, you know, after, after I talked to Jonathan for the first time in, in 2020, 
when we did that stream with Mercury from sorting myself out. Um, he hooked me up with, with a priest that he thought uh, would understand me well. Uh, that's Father John. And um, we still talk from time to time. And I, I remember that when, when we started talking, I still was in this weird new agey way of thinking. And I, I saw that the Christian symbolism must be true technically. But also I had all these weird ideas of, you know, reincarnation and all like the mushroom, like all that stuff. And um, he was very, very, very patient with me. Like I asked the same questions over and over and over again and had him explain it to me and explain it to me. And he like not once was he acting annoyed or getting angry that I still wouldn't believe one thing or the other or whatever. And he didn't even try to convince me or force to do anything, but he just explained and he, he was understanding and kind. And that's how, like, that's really, that's really good. I'm very thankful that he did it that way. Like, like praise God. Um, and that's the way that we have to engage everyone. That, like, technically, that's the way that I have to engage you <laughs> if you want to, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's how we as Christians have to um, talk to anyone who talks to us. And, yeah. I, I, I don't think that's, like, a, a lesson to give just to Christians either. I think that's for everybody. Like, have that kind of attitude when talking to people. And I'm, I'm sure that... The guy you're talking about has heard all kinds of crazy stories before in a lot less polite ways. So I'm sure talking to someone like you was probably like, oh, this guy's actually willing to have a conversation. Because I think that's like really rare these days is to just, you know, step outside of your own time signature, try to learn a new way of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah, I also think that that's very rare. Um, but the thing that you said about communion earlier, before I've lost the lost the, uh, my my train of thought and got into Father John, um, is that I I uh, talked to him uh, two weeks ago, I think, and the question that I was talking to him about was um, like it's 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 a it's a simple question. But I asked him, how do I become a man? And then also specifically, because I, I aspire to become a priest, as you know, uh, how, how do I become a man um, that can be a priest of God? Because that's like a very important um, role to take on. And the way that he explained it was also that it's only in communion with other people. There is no other way than that. So you either find a wife and you take on the highest form of responsibility that you can, which is caring for your own family and sacrificing yourself over and over and over and over again for them. Uh, or you become a monk and do something similar in the monastic community that you join, because you also become like a family there and you have to sacrifice yourself for them again and again. Um, so I think that's a very good answer. You're absolutely right. Like you have to have a community for that. Yeah, I think I just have uh, just one more thing. Like you, you had like your uh, like atheist phase though. So like, what happened 
before that? Were you like raised fairly Christian or what uh, denomination were you or what was that really like? It's very, you know, my, my mother um, believes in God, but she doesn't go to church except for Christmas. And she also doesn't go to a church because she thinks this is the correct denomination, but because, because well, she believes in God and she has not really, um, like, her, her ideas about religion are not as elaborate as specific theologies, are, so she doesn't pay too much attention to that. Um, but I always, I grew up with a belief in God and in Satan, um, without really knowing how to conceptualize it. I didn't even really know either that Christ was also God or had no idea how to conceptualize that, so I just put it aside. Um, I did pray when I was a kid, and also when I was a teenager even, but not at all regularly, only when things went really, really, really bad and like I didn't know what to do otherwise. Um, that's when I, but I was also mostly complaining then, you know, why does this happen to me? This is so unfair. Can't you do something about it? And I wasn't really paying attention to the things that I did that made bad things happen. Um, and then I had this, like my, my punkish phase, uh, where I, I wouldn't say that I stopped believing in God really, but I kind of acted as if and, and also towards myself because I liked the arrogant attitude that you could take on that uh, when you say like oh you believe in the sky daddy oh yeah he has a long white beard uh -huh. yeah. and I, I like making fun of people who believed in that and just straw manning their positions so that's that's my atheistic phase I would say um, I think then I had like what would really be a materialistic Phase where, where I thought that everything could be explained by uh, physical phenomena. But, I, I mean, I didn't elaborate on that at all in my thoughts even, so I couldn't tell you if it was really materialistic or if there was something spiritual underlying. Because then when I got into mysticism and this whole New Age stuff, it was very easy for me to accept these these concepts about like the duality of the world where you have the material world and the spiritual world um, that was very easy for me to adopt and then when I got into psychedelics um, I mean that made things even more obvious that it's not only not only the material world um, so I kind of felt at home in that um, in these ideas as well uh, then I got more into symbolism I got more into different ideas uh, of how the world works. I really loved listening to uh, Alan Watts and Terence McKenna. Um, and I still love listening to them because they have fun ideas. And some of those ideas are even to a degree in, in, incorporable uh, into, into uh, the Christian idea of things. You just have to phrase them differently so they make more sense. Um, and then I started comparing uh, because some of these ideas made sense to a certain level, uh, but then they didn't anymore. And there were still questions that necessarily needed to be, answer uh, to be answered to confirm any of these ideas. 
And when I then compared them to the Christian answers that I found and that I got also from Father John and from Jonathan and from Jordan and all of that, then I just saw that they don't hold up. Like it just it has to be one or the other. Like you can't have either uh, reincarnation or the Christian way of things. Like it, it like it has to be one of those. It can't be both at the same time. Um, and I yeah well I I started comparing and I saw that my previous ideas didn't didn't hold up, and then I had to swap them out. Okay. I like to think of the Terence McKenna line whenever getting into like a, like comparing different ideas. Like I don't believe this stuff. I'm just a meme spreader. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Like I do, yeah. I and I think that's like I I still like to take that on that stance when I uh, when I <clears throat> when I discuss ideas with other people. Like while I am an a a, a vessel, or I try to be a vessel for for Orthodox Christianity. Uh, I I still have to be. It's necessary to be open to these other ideas, and you have to be able to step aside from what you yourself believe, or you won't be able to even understand other points of views. And only if you understand other points of views properly, then you can also make arguments against it. Because otherwise you're going to strawman them and your opponent is going to notice that and won't listen to you anymore. So if I, you know, every time that you some, uh, say something like, um, there are pagan uh, attributes that I like and that are useful or whatever, if I were just, no, it's all demons, it's all evil and I'm not going to listen, that's so stupid. That's, it makes no sense whatsoever. It helps nobody. And it also it just shows that you're unsure about your own beliefs. You know, if, if, if I don't know anything about my own beliefs and I just said, okay, I'm going to believe that now, but please don't show me anything else because I won't be able to defend my worldview. Um, <clears throat> like that's, that's how you look to other people and that's what you are in that situation. But if you, if you know, A, if you know why you believe the things that you believe, and also, if you then know what exactly the other person believes, um, and if you're, that's the most important thing, dedicated to truth, then you have nothing to fear. Because even if I were to find out for some, like, I, that's not going to happen, but even if I were to find out that Christianity isn't true, but Hinduism is or whatever, like, I'm dedicated to truth, yeah, then, then that's truth. It isn't. Like, I know why it isn't, and I know why I didn't choose Hinduism over Christianity, but, like, you, like, these three things are very important, I think. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. When we mm -hmm. were talking about, like, uh, like, your upbringing, when you were talking about, like, uh, you, you had your mother who believed in God, but, like, when I was a kid, I would ask my parents, like, about God, like, is there a God? And they'd be like, yeah, of course there is. I'd say, like, well, why or how? And, you know, ask all the silly little questions that any kid would ask. And I would, like, see through their answers. Like, well, like, I, if I can tell that you haven't really thought about this and don't have a good answer for me, then why would I accept your answer? Of, well, it just is. It's in the Bible. It's just... It's just how I've always learned it. It's the way it is, don't you know? Come on, these are just facts. I'm like, well, that doesn't work for me right now. 
I'm an inquisitive little child who's looking for answers. Yeah. But like after after this long of like not having any you know really concrete answers, you start to you know just accept the mystery of it and be like, well, I I understand the the symbology and the separation of heaven and earth at this point but to say like heaven and hell as like an afterlife well I'm not sold until you can convince me it's not that I'm like I reject these ideas outright it's just that I've already been convinced by the other side the atheist argument let's say and like it, it's it's difficult to debunk atheism, so just in the same way that it's difficult to debunk Christianity. Like last time we talked about uh, ancient aliens, very easily to point at the evidence and say these people are lying to you. And like when I hear atheists say the same thing about Christianity, saying these people are lying to you, I like. You buy into it for a while, and then after on, you realize that, like, no, of course they weren't lying to me. These people believe what they're saying. But is that enough to make me believe them when they say it? Not so much. But, you know, the, the Jordan Peterson act-as-if argument is, is, is probably closest to the best that I've seen, so... You know, I'm yes. Not, I'm not closed off from the idea of Christianity, but it's just it, I'm not. That's I'm mm -hmm. not at four four time yet. I'm still playing two four time. <laughs> As someone commented on my upload of the conversation, uh, something like um, "I act as if God exists" is not is not sufficient. And uh, I mean, uh, there's a way in which I agree, of course, as a Christian, uh, you can't only act as if because there are many implications that come with that, uh, where you have to follow through. But it's such a great start for someone who isn't a Christian to say, okay, I'm going to try to act as if there was a God, even if I can't believe yet. Um, so that's that's a really great thing, and that's also how it started for me. I didn't believe in like the Christian idea of God in the same way that I believe now. Um, but after Jordan explained like the psychological uh, meaning of all these stories and and all that stuff, I said, "Yeah, no, okay, there's something that makes sense about it, even if it's only psychological. This is, might be the best way to go about it." So that's that that's at least a good start. And it's also a lot better as a, a conviction um, than many other ideas that you can buy into. So I think that's a that's a good thing. If you um, if you when you say like you, believing in heaven and hell as as a reality um, or understanding them, one way to to start approaching it is that you uh, see being not as being, but as becoming. Um, things are not, they are becoming something. And we see that all the time, like things evolve all the time in, in, into other things. So you could say that everything in the world and every person in the world is evolving towards either the absolute good, uh, the absolute good or the absolute evil. 
um, even if it's just small steps in either directions, that is what we are all doing. And so you see heaven and hell as the state that we reach after be becoming is over and we have become and we are. So maybe that's a way to approach it at least. Yeah, like... Yeah, like those are just like... Uh, it's easy to see that through a, an atheist lens as well. It's like the world is in constant flux and even evolution too. Like we're always becoming something else. And just heaven and hell are the ultimate consequences of that. They are the two end goals that we can work towards. Yeah, like heaven and hell, I believe in as a state of mind, but not as, you know, places we go after we die. Like, as a faithless atheist, I'm just like, death is the end point for me. And, you know... Uh, life is is worth living because of that like we know it's going we know we only have like a limited time to do the things that we want to do and figure out what we want to do so just like focus on that and you know there, there's a lot of Christians that just say well the only thing that matters is the afterlife and I'm I'm pretty opposed to that yeah I think I mean if you look into the non-canonical uh, Gospel of Thomas, uh, Christ says in that Gospel, um, the kingdom of God is spread out before the eyes of men, but men do not see it. Um, so it definitely is, is a state of mind that you have. Like You can bring God's love and this heavenly state to other people through the way that you act towards them. And you can do the opposite as well as we see every day. Um, so I think that is a good way to approach it. If you say uh, life is worth living because it ends, then, I mean, I have enough trust that you don't turn that into a hedonistic philosophy uh, because, I don't, because you have some grasp of the transcendent still, even if you say you don't believe. Like you see how, how, how pure hedonism which could be a consequence of a worldview like that, is not going to be sufficient to have a fulfilling life. Um, so you have to be careful with that. But there is some poetic beauty about the idea of life is worth living because it ends. Like, that's, that's a nice thing. Yeah. I, like, I, I take it from, like, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, like the Stoic rule of thought and I think a lot of people either misinterpret it or like deliberately spin it around to make it sound like oh you just uh, like when they talk about memento mori remember you will die that's not some depressing thing like oh by the way remember you're gonna die someday and it's gonna suck it's like no this this, what you're going through, had a beginning, it has an end, and right now you're in the most vital part of it. So do something with it, because this is a gift. doesn't matter if it comes from a God that you believe in, or it just, you know, happened by chance that you became alive 
And it just happened by chance that there was bacteria that came out of the muck that eventually evolved into into fish that evolved into lobsters and then into monkeys and then into whatever else. It's like we we still have that in us. Like whatever it is, whatever the breath of life can be considered to be, it's important to recognize that this is something that like has been given to you. You didn't earn it. Like whether it was given to you or it just happened, that's clear at least. You didn't earn it. This just happened to you. Like if anybody earned it, it was your parents who like were able to find each other and then procreate and create a human being. Like you, yeah. Like looking at it the other way is like Memento Mori is just like, well, you're gonna die, so what's the point? That's just nihilism, and yeah, I don't, I don't think nihilism is the answer at all. I mean, Nietzsche had some good ideas, but look at what ne most of them did to him. <laughs> I, I have to be, I, I have to defend him here. I mean, even though you're right, because he he turned absolutely batshit crazy in the end. <laughs> yeah, um, but like Nietzsche was not a like he didn't invent nihilism and he also didn't propagate it at all like everything that he did even he his mental breakdown he became a victim of it though in the end i think he dabbled with it too much and in his attempt to destroy nihilism it consumed him it's like the oedipus complex if you drive at, like, one thing to negate it your entire life, you end up doing it. You know, it's the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you feel, I think Nietzsche thought he was a prophet that was going to, you know, bring about the Superman in everybody. And it ended up crushing him. That's my view on Nietzsche. Yeah, I would, I would slightly... Uh, I would I would phrase it slightly different. Uh, I don't think that he thought he was a prophet in like this arrogant way that you can think of it. Uh, I think that he saw the approaching nihilism and the horrors that would come out of it, and he was panicking about that, rightly so, and trying everything that he could to prevent it without. Uh, um, consciously reaching back to Christianity and using it against it. Like he said, truth is real, beauty is real, values are real. So I'm going to burn every conception that we have of these things down because they are all flawed. And if it's really real and it really does exist, then I won't be able to destroy it. And then we can have something good come out of the chaos that is going to, that that is going to come necessarily. So, so he was trying to make the horrors of the twentieth century that hadn't happened yet, uh, but he knew that they would happen. Um, he was trying to make them at least worth like something, so that something good could come out of it again. And I also think, like you do, that this made him go crazy. Like this broke his mind completely, because he can't do that.
Right, that's why I always get so annoyed when like fourteen-year-olds use the "God is dead" sentence in a in a way that makes it sound cheery. Like Nietzsche wasn't happy about that at all. He was broken beyond repair by that realization. Yeah, and he he like he says it both as an accusation and a confession because he was like part of the like God is dead, and we have killed him. Like, yeah, like we just committed a murder. What now, guys? <laughs> like, we have to live with that. Like, I, I've heard the the phrase before: "God's not dead; he's just on life support." It gives me a chuckle. <laughs> like, I might be true. Like I said, I think we're coming back to a, a time of tradition and you know, God being more present in people's lives, but yeah, I'm not sure what it's going to look like in that transition period. It might, Awful. Be, it might be nice and smooth. It might be a war. <laughs> it is It is an outright war for sure. Yeah, like we have had, at least. yeah, we have had a lot of casualties. Even if you look into social trends that I'm trying not to name directly so that we don't get banned, um there are like there are ideologies that are causing people to do awful things irreparable things that they are going to regret for the rest of their lives and they can't do anything to change it anymore that's only one thing and there are many things we have casualties in every on every level of society because of this war because of the murder that we have committed um and until God resurrects again, because that's what he does, um, and we can see him again, then until that, it's going to be mayhem all, all the way through. Yeah. But that's fine. That's a purpose, man. That's, that's a cool thing, actually, to, to uh, engage in. Because how boring would it be if, if everything would be fine now and we had nothing to do? We have a lot of things to do. And that's, that gives you purpose and you, you, can, you can do something meaningful. Yeah. So, uh, if you're listening to us and you're feeling a little sad at the end, just cling on to that. You can find the meaning somewhere in this, this battlefield of ideas, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think I think it's time that we uh, will wrap this one up. If you're uh, if you're new around here, and you should join our our discords. The, both our links should be in the description down below. Check out a whole bunch of Marvin's music here. Two more V's on Spotify and everywhere. The Bookwave podcast, uh, Bookwave.club is our website. And uh, until next time, may the force be with you. Just risen. God bless you all.
if that makes sense in terms of yes, well, I, I, I wasn't. I mean, you know, these things <laughs> grasping these things slips out in and out of my capacity. And I mean, I you you did a lovely job there of of, of making a symbolic account for the virginity of Mary. I, I understand that. I understand well. But no one's going to prove the virginity of Mary historically. I mean, that, that's not that's something which is not. That obviously is not possible. It's a secret. There's a secret aspect to virginity, which is actually part of its function. It's also part of its, how can I say this? Part of its of its mystery, right? Which is actually part of its function. And it's also something which is which is not public. It's a secret. It belongs to the identity. It belongs to the, it's like the, the dedication of something belongs to that which is its dedicated. It belongs to the identity, it belongs to the dedication of something belongs to that which is it's dedicated. Imagine that you wanted to form the perfect union with someone. Let's say it's the perfect sexual union for that matter. I think that requires love. I, whenever I've had in my life a sexual experience that wasn't associated with love, I, I didn't feel right about it. I, my conscience bothered me very much, very rapidly. And maybe that makes me an outlier, although I don't think so. I think, I think that that is how people react, but they refuse to notice. Now, I might be wrong about that. Maybe I'm a prude. It's possible, although I don't think so, but it's possible. But it always struck me that sex was best undertaken within the confines of a committed, of an ultimately committed relationship. That otherwise it was lesser. It was less than it should be. It was sullied. Sex was best undertaken within the confines of a committed, of an ultimately committed relationship. That otherwise it was lesser. It was less than it should be. That's been my experience. And so, and I don't know what the preconditions are for establishing the perfect marriage, let's say. And the perfect marriage would be one that brought about the best possible children. These are not trivial things. They're very difficult things to get right. Certainly you want the least amount of animosity, unnecessary animosity possible between the parents. You want the union to be tight. You want it to be based on love, commitment. Tight love, commitment.